Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am your host, Elaine miller Karras, and I want to let you all know, too, that we are um, streaming live on Facebook at Resiliency Within if you'd like to come and see us as well as hear us. So today I have a friend and colleague, Dr. Jordan R. Murphy. She is a pediatric nurse practitioner from the beautiful state of Georgia, and she's going to tell us about the work that she's been doing with a very special program. But I want to start out by talking a little bit about the state of of mental health in our children, which is not a, um, a it's not a very uh, nice tale to tell today, but it's something we have to face if we're going to figure out how we're going to confront this problem and to create healthier children in all of the United States of America and abroad. So the United States Surgeon General in December 2021 warned that young people are facing devastating mental health effects as a result of the challenges experienced by their generation including the pandemic. The message came as part of what is very rare public advisory from the nation's top physician, Dr. Vivek H. Murthy. He he, um, made a 53-page report noting that the pandemic intensified the mental health issues that were already widespread um, by the spring of 2020. So the report cited significant increases in self-reports of depression and anxiety, along with more emergency room visits for mental health issues. And um, I also just recently read in the New York Times about the lack of pediatric beds for children that are having uh, mental health crises. So in the United States, emergency room visits for suicide attempts rose 51% for adolescent girls in early 2021, as compared to the same period in 2019. And the figure rose 4% for, for, for boys. And globally, symptoms of anxiety and depression doubled during the pandemic. So let's talk a little bit about what what Jordan knows, and that's the state of Georgia. And in 2021, Georgia ranked 49th in the access to behavioral health services, and children and youth have been particularly affected by the shortages of providers. Longer That means longer waits um, to receive mental health services, and that's contributing to increases in crisis level care and emergency um, uh, room visits. So the Center for Interrelational Science and Pediatrics, in partnership with the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities in Resilient Georgia, is engaged in statewide efforts to train and support Georgia's behavioral health workforce with trauma and resiliency-informed wellness interventions. So let me, and she's going to tell us all about this, but I want to say a little bit more about about Jordan. So she's a nurse and a researcher, and she's been doing a lot of research on the community resiliency model as well, which I am very proud to know about and um, appreciate her dedication to that. But she's a researcher specializing in pediatric behavioral health with particular interest in 
social and emotional development, epigenetics, and the effects of intergenerational trauma. And through her private practice, Dr. Murphy trains individuals and organizations in wellness interventions. And she's also committed to ensuring equitable access to highly quality healthcare for marginalized communities. And Dr. Um, Murphy, I'm very proud to say, is a one of our senior uh, teachers for the Trauma Resource Institute, and she is also a senior community resiliency model um, teacher. And also, she and I have been working together with the Marilyn Medgar Evers um, Institute in Jackson, Mississippi, and she is a consultant. And she just led a, um, a actually a panel discussion about health disparities um, for the institute. So she's a very um, accomplished young woman. I'm happy to know her. And um, we're going to talk today about bridges to therapy, which is what you really felt this is, was going to be all about, closing the gap for George's children and youth. So first of all, Jordan, what's on your mind today as, we, as we're getting started to have this conversation together? Well, thank you, Elaine, for having me here on your show to talk about um, the challenges we're facing I think the statistics you mentioned are very alarming. And also, you know, I have so many of my own experiences as a provider, providing care to youth and children, uh, particularly in the state of Georgia. And um, what we are seeing reflected in the numbers, I see reflected in conversations. Um, I see it in on-site visits at daycares and with families. So I am here to talk about some of the early efforts that we are doing here in the state of Georgia to address this crisis in pediatric behavioral health. So that's my goal is to um, hopefully talk about something that maybe we've all heard, whether in a news report or a research article, but also talk about some of the efforts toward addressing this issue. And Jordan, I have to say, Jordan and I met in a sleet storm in Georgia. I'd never seen one because I'm from California. And she had the dedication to keep coming to the training, which I was very appreciative for too, Jordan, that you did that. But also that kind of leads me to my next question, which is that you know, it seems like you're kind of passionate about this. So what led you to this field of behavioral health and wanting to help? I know that you have a strong commitment, not only to the youth, but to the families of the youth. Well, it's a, it's a very long, winding journey. And well, you can tell me about it. We're here to hear that long, winding journey. So go ahead. <laughs> well, it actually started at the bench. So in um, a number of years ago, I was actually doing research at the bench, studying a number of human diseases. And I felt as though I wasn't making the impact that I would like. And so after a few years, I decided to go back to school. So nursing is actually a second career for me. And so can you tell us what the bench is? I don't know what that is. Yeah. So it's just working, doing bench science. So Oh, okay. Okay. So working in a research lab, um, studying cells and um, looking at human disease processes. And so I decided to go back to school as a second career for nursing to get my PhD in nursing, which a lot of people say, what do you do with a PhD in nursing? <laughs> a lot of people know what a nurse does, but they just don't know um, what a PhD nurse does. And so we pretty much do research, but we also have the opportunity to work directly with patients, manage their care, um, provide treatment and referrals. 
So I decided to go back to school and I studied social and emotional development at six months of age. So working with infants, working with their primary care provider, their primary providers, um, they're typically their parents, the mother. And I became very interested in how social environments can really um, influence a child's behavior, even from infancy. And that sort of led me to want to explore this further, not only from a research aspect, but also um, in the field. So going directly into the community, um, watching how children behave, in their daycare settings, in the school setting, and seeing how I can bridge that gap between research and clinical practice. So I actually came to behavioral health just interested in social and emotional development. Um, I spent some time working as a psychiatric nurse. And um, once I became a pediatric nurse practitioner working in primary care, I actually spent about 90% of my time Uh, managing behavioral health crises in children. And that was pretty alarming for me. Um, I thought I was going to be a provider that does well visits and manages runny noses and headaches. But actually, I spent most of my time managing anxiety and depression and even those big words like self-harm and suicidality. So my work has really expanded, um, which is why I've become more specialized in working um, with those conditions in children and youth. Well, I have to say, um, I have personally um, seen you working with a young woman at one of our trainings, and I was struck by your incredible compassion. I know part of that work for you, too, has been volunteering at the Covenant House. And so could you just say a little bit about that? I know we hadn't planned to talk about that, but I'm just thinking about that young lady and how kind and sweet you were to her and, um, and that you've chosen at time to, I don't know if you're still out there, but you were, you were there volunteering in the past. Yes. I, so I previously worked for a free healthcare clinic. And as a part of my role, uh, we actually partnered with shelters. So Covenant House Georgia was one shelter that we partnered with. And we provided both primary care services as well as behavioral health services. So I took on the role um, of providing behavioral health services. The youth were typically between 18 and 25 years of age. And I would do weekly mental health groups. And actually the primary intervention that I used during those groups was the community resiliency model, um, which was developed by the Trauma Research Institute and is a set of six wellness skills. And what I found is that the youth were very receptive to these community resiliency model wellness skills. And I would come in, I would teach, but then the youth would raise their hands and they would say, I want to teach about the brain this week. I want to teach about the nervous system. I wanna teach about a wellness skill like resourcing to my peers. So the model worked. Um, The youth wanted more of the wellness skills, and I was just there to help uh, facilitate. And I had the opportunity to interact with many youth who were having um, some challenging life experiences, like um, the young lady that you and I um, had the opportunity to interact with. And what I know is that just by introducing wellness skills, by... um, introducing individuals to this idea that they have inner wisdom, they have resiliency, and that resiliency can be cultivated, sometimes with a little bit of time, a little bit of patience, 
um, they're really receptive to that kind of conversation. And so what I found is that the wellness skills were acceptable and they actually worked. Um, and you saw during that interaction that we were able to help a young lady who was having a really difficult moment, not um, reflective of who she is no. overall, but she had a difficult moment. Well, and I, so I just so appreciate that you did that work and having, I went out to Covenant House um, when I was out, I think the last time I was in Atlanta and I'm always so, um, I admire the kids because they've been through so much and they're trying, they're trying to make a better way for themselves. And I think that's, that was a very hopeful thing to see. Of course, it was hopeful for me to see them using the skills and teaching the skills and they were really good at it. So I was so, you know, when we talk about natural leaders, I said, wow, if we can get the natural leaders of young of, of young young people who've had not the best uh, hand dealt to them and they can learn how to cultivate the well-being. That's a hopeful moment for all of us, which, yeah. which kind of leads me to the next, the next question about, you know, I want to hear more about where, where, well, first of all, where do you currently practice and what are some of the challenges you face as a healthcare provider? So I'm in private practice at the Center for Interrelational Science and Pediatrics. And I actually go on site. So I do some telehealth, but I actually go on site to daycare centers and um, shelters in order to provide direct care services. So one benefit of going on site is I get the opportunity to see children and also youth um, in their environments. So not coming to me, um, not coming to my office, but I get to see them in their environment Um, How does their environment influence some of their behaviors? How do those behaviors change from the morning to the afternoon? Um, How do those behaviors change when um, other adults or um, new adults enter into the space or familiar adults enter into the space? And so I provide um, behavioral health services. I do a lot of screening, especially uh, for children aged zero to five. I do a lot of behavioral health screening making sure they're meeting their milestones. One of the challenges I face is here in Georgia, we are experiencing a shortage in behavioral health providers. So what that means for me as a provider is um, oftentimes my caseload is larger than what um, is reasonable to manage. Um, the need far exceeds what I am capable of doing in any given week. And so that is the greatest challenge. Um, We need more support. We need more providers to help manage care. Um, Because as you mentioned earlier, we are facing a crisis in pediatric behavioral health. um, And we need access to services and providers who can help to manage some of these um, early and often modifiable changes in behaviors. So I'm also, as you're you know, talking, and we talked a little bit about this be- um, before the show started, but when you take care of a child or a youth, you're really also caring for the parents as well. So could you say a little bit about that? Because sometimes you say, oh, it's the kid. And then you say, well, let's talk about the family and see what's going on with you know, the caregivers. So can you say a little bit about that, Jordan? So one thing I uh, learned in my early research is that children are very much um, dependent on a primary uh, caregiver. 
typically it's a parent, but it, we're talking about birth parents, we're talking about foster parents, we're talking about adoptive parents as well. And so a lot of times when we see changes in a child's behavior, um, we have to invite the primary family members into the conversation, into the treatment plan. Um, oftentimes when I'm working with, especially really young children, um, it's my first goal to make contact with the parent, especially if I'm on site at a daycare, um, but make contact with the parent and ask them, you know, what do they believe about their child's behavior? Um, how are they managing their child's behavior? What frustrates them the most? But I also make sure to ask about self-care. Um, how are they taking care of self? So we know that children, especially really young children, they co-regulate or they work with um, and interact with a, a primary attachment figure in order to help manage their emotions. And sometimes they have really big emotions and they need help managing those emotions. And so it's this recognition that we really need to work on providing skills and education and support to parents. And then we'll start to see changes, positive changes in um, child health outcomes. Well, I think that's, I, I'm so glad that you're, you're really looking at, at that child in the system of the family. And I think that whole aspect of co-regulation cannot be under, <laughs> underestimated. Remembering when I was, um, you know, raising my own children who are now grown, but I mean, there were times when I go, I don't know what I want to do with this child, but I, I need to do something to calm myself down first. In that case, I would go into the bathroom and I would sit on top of the toilet and I would turn the water on and hear the water running and the water running would just calm me down enough. And sometimes they'd be on the, on the door, then they'd start knocking going, let me in. I go, mom needs a timeout, right? And I really did need the timeout. So I calmed down, I could come back in and I could deal with whatever was happening in a much calmer state. But, you know, it's like, how do we help parents, you know, get into calmer states in order to not harm their children? I think that's, to me, the quintessential question because of that co-regulation. So I imagine you might have some ideas about that. <laughs> so, do. so do you want to share a little bit about some of those ideas about how we help parents co-regulate in a healthier way with their children? Absolutely. I think number one is awareness and education. Uh, sometimes parents don't know what they don't know. Um, sometimes there's a um, lack of understanding just about typical child behaviors. What are typical child behaviors at two, at four, at 13, at 17? And also, um, when do those behaviors reach a level that we should be concerned? So I think helping parents to understand um, children's behavior as it typically develops and also when to intervene. Well, I mean, I'm all for preventative um, wellness skills and preventative interventions. So I um, use the community resiliency model as really just a first line intervention. And that's because it has everything to do with how the families respond to these wellness skills. So with the community resiliency model, we talk about the brain. We talk about normal responses to stress that we all have, whether we're two, whether we're 42. We talk about how our nervous system responds to stress, but we also talk about wellness skills that can help us to restore some level of balance within our nervous system. And so when parents hear this, um, it's sometimes like an aha moment. 
Like it's my nervous system that is responding this way, but also I can learn tools to help me in those difficult moments. So like you mentioned, it was listening to the water and yes. time out. Um, yes. Sometimes we think uh, managing emotions and behaviors is intuitive, uh, but actually we have to learn. We have to learn those skills. And those skills are also different depending on the situation. So maybe the skills I use at home are different than the school, the skills that I use in the school setting or the work environment or a community setting. So awareness and education, um, self-care for parents, and also a lot of tips about how to manage those big emotions in children and when to seek care, when to seek services. Those are probably the primary ways that I introduce and work with. Well, when I think about it too, I, I thought about this in my early days when I was Lamaze educator and I'd see parents with their babies. And it's like, where do we learn how to take care of babies? Um, so if we were lucky enough to have parents and grandmothers that were around that, you know, showed good skills about swaddling and how to hold the baby and all those things that was, but many people didn't have that. And so as a child grows, I think, oh my goodness, you know, as a, t- you know, having two-year-olds and having them throw tantrums in m- the middle of the store, they're looking at you saying, what's wrong with you, mother, that you're not able to control your child. And then of course, then you feel great shame. And then you want to, you want to tell the kid to stop and the kid's not stopping. So it kind of creates the perfect storm of not helping the child and feeling terrible as a parent. So I'm really happy to hear that you're given education and, and some tools because that's what we need. I think we get more education about driving a car than we do about raising a child. So um, this, this is really positive, positive direction. And so that leads me to talking about Bridges to Therapy Initiative, because I think this is one of the potential vehicles that's being launched in the state of Georgia that could make a huge difference. So can you, can you tell us what it is and tell us how you're involved? And I think people are going to be excited to hear about this. So um, as I mentioned previously, when I was working at a free healthcare clinic, about 90% of my time was devoted to managing behavioral health challenges and mostly um, youth up to about age of 26. So um, anywhere from 16 to 26. And what I realized is that when I was working in a primary care setting, and I would um, interact with the youth that was showing signs of anxiety or depression, I would do what I was trained to do. I would call in a referral. And what happened, what actually happened in practice is that the individual would tell me, well, my appointment is in three or four months. And the, which is pretty striking. The youth that I work with, Um, they were experiencing homelessness, um, most of them. Uh, They had aged out of the foster system and now found themselves at places such as Covenant House, Georgia. And so what I knew as a provider is that they were not likely to show up for that visit in three to four months. And we can name all of the barriers as to why. And so I started to say, well, your visit is in three to four months, but how about you meet with me once a week and we will do wellness skills and we'll get you ready for therapy. And so these community resiliency model skills, they were so easy to use. Again, they were accepted by the youth and we were able to front load the youth before they did a deep dive into some of their trauma um, once they were linked to 
a provider. And what I also found is that they were showing up for their scheduled um, sessions in three to four months, which would never have happened had we not established a pattern of meeting uh, beforehand. Because then I could say, you know, you have your first mental health session coming up uh, next week. How are you going to get there? Let's see if we have any resources to make sure that you get there. And the, the weekly sessions varied. It could be um, over the phone. Sometimes I would go on site to the shelter. Sometimes it would be telehealth. It was whatever the youth needed, whatever um, was required to make sure that um, they actually made it to their visits. So fast forward a few months after that sort of aha moment, um, Bridges to Therapy was developed to address the gap in the time period from when a youth or a child presents with mental or behavioral health challenges or symptoms and when they are actually linked to care. So we're providing wellness skills until the youth can. Um, and so are you training a lot of other providers to do what you had done with these wellness check, um, check-ins? Yes. So um, the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities has provided funding support so that we can um, train behavioral health providers across the state. And that has been um, just amazing to have that opportunity opened up really to anyone um, who is able to attend. Um, And we pretty much do, um, we have a four hour training. So the first hour is just an introduction. What is the community resiliency model? Um, How might it be used in certain fields? And then the three hours is a workshop. And we actually practice the wellness skills um, so that behavioral health providers can use it for self-care, but also so that they are better prepared to introduce it um, during those one-on-one sessions with clients. So it's truly, it's truly using the natural, these natural leaders to help the children. Oh, I want to hear a little bit more about this. We're, we need to take a little bit of a break. We're going to take in just a minute or so and to talk more about Bridges to Therapy. But so, Jordan, did you help d- design the Bridges to Therapy? I did. I- oh, my gosh. You know, we, I know, Jordan. I didn't really realize that she had actually designed it. Oh, my. It was developed right out of those, um, right out of that need, those interactions with clients who said, I need a visit now, but I won't get one for three months. What do I do? And this is what we say about, you know, kind of like having to think outside the box. Because if we only depend on the the mental health system in the way that it exists in Georgia, by the way, in many places in the entire world in that way, then what happens between that day one of asking for the appointment and four months down the road? And that's when you have increased visits to the ER because now what may have been something that you could have really helped with some deep listening and wellness skills now is a psychiatric emergency. Yes. Uh, And think about the savings of money too. I'm thinking about that, that in terms of good reasons also why uh, governments should change policy to support children in a way, because I know they're always trying to, you know, figure out how to decrease the cost of Oops, my sound is funny right here um, in terms of decreasing those kinds of costs. But that's, of course, the most fundamental reason is helping to bring healing to a child, that, that it has long-lasting implications for, for, for his or their entire life. 
So with that, Jordan, we're going to pause for just a second. We're going to hear from our sponsor, the Trauma Resource Institute, and we will be back for more illuminations from the very, I'm going to say brilliant, Dr. Jordan Murphy. All right. You know, I think that. All right. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. Uh, this is Elaine miller Karras with um, Voice America, Resiliency Within, and I am here with, with Dr. Jordan Murphy, who is telling us about a pretty amazing program that she actually helped create called Bridges to Therapy. And she was telling us a little bit about it before the break, but I'm going to ask her a couple more questions. So if you're, um, do you have to be a, 
pediatric nurse practitioner to be part of Bridges to Therapy? Who can, who can sign up for this um, offering? So the training, uh, Bridges to Therapy, is available to behavioral health providers, um, but also educators and really any organization that is serving children, youth, and families. So it's pretty broad. Um, We want as many people to show up as possible and as there is room for with the recognition that if you are providing services, direct services um, to children, that it would be helpful to even just be aware of um, these wellness skills. So, uh, so you were saying to me um, uh, when we were on break that a lot of teachers are signing up. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, we have lots of educators who join this training and which makes sense because the children spend most of their time, most of their day during the week in school settings. Um, I recently read an article that was talking about the need to expand behavioral health services directly to schools. Um, A lot of our educators are um, having the challenge of managing behavioral and um, emotional challenges that are presenting during the school day. And many of them report wanting skills, not only for self-care, you know, how do I maintain my composure during those moments, but also how do I help the child or how do I help the classroom even? So lots of educators are interested in this approach. So, um, so the training is a four-hour training where they learn the basics of the community resiliency model. Then what happens after the four hours? Are they all, they're ready to go after four hours? So after four hours, um, we consider them community resiliency model guides. We encourage them to use them um, in those one-on-one conversations with youth. And then we're really encouraging people to go to the Trauma Resource Institute and become certified. Um, That is a goal that a number of us CRIM teachers have or community resiliency model teachers have in Georgia is that there will be Um, certified community resiliency model teachers in every county in Georgia um, who can help to sustain this approach. Um, So it doesn't just work with me. Um, It works when we have those natural leaders from their communities who say, I know what the needs of my community are. I have a new set of skills to help me address the need and I can get started today. (laughs) So we're sending (laughs) lots for certification. Well, and what I, what I love about what you're doing is that there also seems to be um, that you're collaborating with other organizations within Georgia. And I really think if anybody's listening from another state, another country, what are the different stakeholders in your community that could come together to implement a program like that? Because if you're doing a four-hour training to make them CRIM guides, that's not really very long in terms of how long that takes, because we can learn the CRIM skills pretty quickly, right? We do want them to become CRIM teachers if possible, but sometimes it's not possible. And so I think that this, this uh, how did you decide to link to Resilient Georgia, for example? And I know that we've, I've worked with Resilient Georgia in the past, and they're really amazing about really trying to, to bring well-being to the entire Georgia community. Well, I knew that in order to get this initiative across the state, I would need um, organizations that are working um, across the state to help introduce this model to organizations. So Resilient Georgia, um, they are just a wonderful um, group of people 
who are supporting behavioral health services and providers across the state. And they really work to connect communities. Um, so they have 16 regions across the state and they help to support resiliency initiatives within those 16 regions. Um, the community resiliency model just so happens to be one of um, the most popular items on the menu as I've heard. <laughs> and so oh, making me happy. <laughs> yes, okay. So community will request, request a training and we'll either um, do a individualized training for the organization, um, or they will attend one of the sponsored trainings by the Department of Behavioral Health. So we need to get our, our state agencies involved. Um, we also need to get our community organizations involved in order to help this model and this approach um, be sustained over the long term, which is really the goal. Well, and I think that's really important for us to think about sustainability because sustainability is also scalability. Because um, if you have more crim teachers that can do more workshops and, and you have more crim guides that are really sprinkled throughout the entire state in all the different organizations that serve not only children, but serve adults as well, then you have a really great chance of people co-regulating together. And who knows? I mean, I have really maybe lofty hopes of it reducing violence, reducing the kind of um, domestic violence situations that we see that, that lead to such chaos within families and is certainly harmful to everyone, including their children. So this has so, so many implications to me um, when, when you share this. Are there, are there any things that as you've started the project that, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen, but this is part of it too? A good question. Um, I think the level of excitement has, I wouldn't say that it's been a surprise because as you know, uh, communities happen to be very excited about the wellness skills. But I think um, within the state of Georgia, there's such an enthusiasm for what this approach might mean. And we've had many um, groups, so there's educators, um, there's a really large interest in those who work with the Department of Juvenile Justice, um, uh, there's a really big interest with daycare providers, which I see as an early opportunity for prevention of um, emotional and behavioral health challenges. So the level of enthusiasm um, and all of the open doors to attending um, this sort of training, right, to help reduce the stigma um, and help to address what we're facing, which is a crisis, has been encouraging, to say the least. Well, and, and what you shared a couple stories with me that were very um, sorrowful. Um, and I think we just need to say them out loud because I think people need to know the implications that if we don't know how to bring wellness to families and children, you were sharing to me two stories of two little three-year-olds that are having aggressive behaviors and what kind of um, behavioral management strategies are being suggested for these two children that you shared with me? And I'll, I'll just clarify that they were um, described as aggressive behaviors. Um, what we actually know is that those behaviors were reflective of things that the children had seen, um, whether that is a domestic violence situation and the child is now reacting um, or acting out behaviorally what they have witnessed. 
um, or whether that is this desire to manage a child's behavior medically. So what we're starting to see and some of the cases that I've heard that have been quite alarming um, is this idea of medically managing behaviors that actually can be addressed um, on site in those heightened moments with wellness skills and wellness interventions, um, such as the community resiliency model. And I think that's so important to know uh, because children's brains are developing rapidly in the first three years, in the first five years. And so to manage behaviors um, medically is um, a slippery slope, to say the least. And I think also we need to know what other options are out there, right? How can we intervene early? How can we intervene um, when children are in the daycare settings, which is one initiative that I'm working on um, with this Bridges to Therapy approach? Um, how can we support children and families before children enter into the school system? when it becomes more difficult to manage behaviors um, and the likelihood of managing it medically is, is increased. I think one of the things I want to say about managing it medically is that if we haven't really well researched particular medications on children, we don't really know the impact. Yes. Um, we can say how it affects adults, but the other thing I think that some medication does, especially um, when I hear about antipsychotics being used, it really numbs affect. It numbs a child's ability to sometimes experience joy and other aspects of development that are so important for that really malleable brain that's you know learning so many things. So these kinds of interventions that we're talking about have, I think, grave implications um, if we don't end up integrating them somehow in our our systems to change that kind of mentality because is the child learning behaviors that are helping him to be able to manage his distress? I think that's why Jordan, you and I get so excited about just even the help now strategies of the community resiliency model, because those are, they can help manage their distress in order to get into their zone. So that empowers them. Doesn't It's not used as a management tool. It's used as something, as an empowerment like a superpower that you can use for yourself. I think it's important to delineate that because I have had some people say, well, are you just teaching wellness skills to manage behavior for, for the adults in that child's life that can't manage, manage the child? And the, and the answer to that is no, that's not the intention. I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about that, but I think that's really an important distinction. Well, also, I think what's so interesting is Again, uh, we sometimes think of behaviors and emotions as intuitive and we just know how to manage them. But actually, um, even with children as young as three, I've used help now skills. And I had a three-year-old that I was working with and she has really big emotions. Um, she can name all her feelings on the feelings chart and the emotions wheel. She knows them. Um, she knows how to point to the face that um, reflects her mood. And so I remember one day she was having a big emotion and we were in the play therapy room and I said, well, would you like to push up against the wall? And she tried it with me, um, very willing. And I said, well, what did you think about that? Did you like that? And she said, no, with a big, beautiful smile on her face. And I said, oh, oh boy, maybe I, I haven't done it correctly. I tried again. And she said, no, right. But what we did try was walking down the hall. I said, would you like to take a walk with me? 
And as we walked down the hall, we pointed out really beautiful things on the wall. So butterflies and flowers and pictures. And after about five or seven minutes, she was really ready to go back into the classroom. And so I think it's this recognition that children, even as young as three, can identify if a wellness skill works for them. So we don't have to um, force any of these skills on them. We can actually ask them, what do you think about this skill? They may, she or she or they may say no or yes, um, but we have the opportunity to at least introduce um, these wellness skills. Well, what I love about that story about this little girl is that you gave her choices and that she could choose what didn't work for her and to know because that's managing her little nervous system. Say, well, it didn't work to push against the wall, but walking and naming butterflies, that worked for me. That worked. Yes. So let me ask you my next questions about research. So are you, you, you had mentioned that you are researching the, the model. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Sure. So during the pandemic, um, about the fall of 2022, oh gosh, time has just slipped by, but I think about the summer of 2021, um, myself and some of my colleagues at Emory University School of Nursing, we did one hour wellness skills with nurses and providers and administrators at two local hospitals. Um, and we just asked, we introduced the wellness skills and then we followed up and asked, you know, were these wellness skills working? Um, did they improve well-being? Did these wellness skills reduce secondary um, stress symptoms? And so we've done that research, we've collected the data, and we're just waiting for publication. But actually, um, the findings were very encouraging that for healthcare providers on the front lines during COVID, um, which is you know an acute situation and very stressful, very challenging, um, one hour of wellness skills can actually improve their well-being and decrease their experiences of somatic symptoms like headaches and um, stomach aches. And so um, we're very excited about that research. It was the second randomized controlled trial um, that came out of Emory University. And um, since then, of course, we're thinking of all different ways to um, start new research. Uh, right now, I'm primarily doing program evaluation for Bridges to Therapy. And we're just asking the question, you know, are behavioral health providers using the CRIM wellness skills? Do they think that they are appropriate for their setting? And we'll ask that question at three months, 12 months, and 18 months following their training to see if it works. And so what are some of the early outcomes um, of the Bridges to Therapy? So I haven't analyzed any data yet. Um, however, I do have lots of narrative responses from those who participate. Um, probably the most supportive narrative is I want to bring this training to my organization. <laughs> In fact, we've had many organizations that have followed up after a training and said, we have to get this to our organization. Um, our families, our clients, they need these skills. We need them for staff. Our staff are burnt out. And so um, many people have um, followed up those trainings to uh, have more access to these skills within their own communities and the context in which they work. I always think of that, that thought, that um, 
a statement from Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. It's like you've built something, you're building, literally building the bridges and people are coming and then they, they want more. I mean, this is, I, I'm just so excited to hear more details about it. So um, my next question has to do with what do you hope to gain through your work in Georgia? Um, what change do you hope to see? You know, what is that maybe lofty goal that maybe people are saying, really, Jordan, do you think that's really going to happen? I'm kind of interested in what that might be. Well, I have many goals. <laughs> well, let's hear them all. Come on, Jordan. We have, we have a few more minutes left. <laughs> many goals and dreams. I would say, number one, I hope to see this effort sustained in three years. Um, I hope to see many more organizations actually implementing the community resiliency model within their services. And then I also am really interested in continuity of care. So one thing that I I make sure to mention is that the community resiliency model is not therapy and that um, providers will still need to introduce or um, link individuals to a therapeutic model. And so the trauma resiliency model, um, which is for behavioral health providers and licensed mental health professionals, can help, in my opinion, can help with continuity of care. So if I'm working with an individual that has been exposed to CREM wellness skills and they need a higher level of care, and I can refer them to a trauma resiliency model practitioner who also uses those same wellness skills, um, it can really help with um, continuity of care, but also with the conversation around trauma reprocessing um, in the context of wellness, in the context of resiliency. So sustainability, continuity of care, and then also just getting this out to the school systems. Um, Our educators need um, wellness skills. They need access to wellness skills. Um, Perhaps before they did not enter the field to address behaviors and emotions, they probably entered the field to teach science and other fun subjects, Um, but they need support as well um, with managing on behaviors and emotions in the classroom setting. So I really see this as a comprehensive program, what you're trying to do. I mean, and this, these hopes that you have, I mean, you see it as, as everyone in society. And I think that's probably, it's not this like an us versus them problem. It's a we, it's a we problem, but it's also a, a, that we're designed for, for wellness, but we have to learn how to cultivate those wellness skills because they didn't, come automatically to many of us. We had to learn, just like we needed to learn to write our name or learn the the, um, arithmetic when we were little kids, we might have to learn what those wellness skills are and how to to read your own nervous system. Um, So, so Jordan, I'm curious, you know, as you've been doing this work and now you have this program going and you're, you know, going to be evaluating it soon, you know, like what is... um, what what's happened? What happens inside of you when you think about this course that you made from that bench way back then, saying, "I don't know if I want to do this or not." To what's happening right now for Jordan Murphy? This is a personal question for Jordan. I mean, I have a deep sense of satisfaction, um, but also just joy in being able to meet youth during those moments when they need help the most. So um, the state of pediatric behavioral health is a crisis. 
And that can't be said enough that we are um, working with children who are um, experiencing uh, suicidal ideation and self-harm and so many difficult things and adverse childhood experiences, and they need help. They need services. They need someone to just take a genuine interest in their well-being. And we have the opportunity to do that just by learning really easy to use wellness skills. And so I get a lot of joy in thinking that if a youth comes to me and they say, this really big thing happened, and I don't know what to do about it. I can say, well, let's try some wellness skills. Let's try them right now. We don't have to wait till next week. We don't have to wait for three months. We can use them right now. And I think that has made such a difference in how I practice as a provider um, and also just how I show up when I'm introducing these skills to other providers and educators and families as well. Well, and you know, as you say this too, I'm thinking about how when you say it brings you joy, many people who work with, you know, in the trenches with pediatric behavioral health can get pretty burnt out. And that's not what I'm experiencing from you at all. It's like, it's pretty actually inspiring to think about not only the hope that you are sharing with us, your own hope, but the hope that is in the children and maybe the families when you're sprinkling this approach towards them. So um, Jordan, there may be people that want to get a hold of you. So can you um, tell us about your webpage where they can um, find out about, maybe they want to get this program where they're living and also how they can personally reach you. So how, what is your webpage? The webpage is cispediatrics.com. And if you want to reach me personally by email, you can email me at jordanrmurphy at cispediatrics.com. And so we have one minute left, so I'm just going to thank you um, so much for being here. Jordan, you truly are an inspiring person to me, and what you are doing in your life to help children and families um, is really, um, I can't, I don't, there's no words to tell, tell you how much I appreciate you as a world citizen. And as a, I don't live in Georgia, but I think that the, uh, the residents of Georgia are so lucky to have you there. And this is also an example of what else is true. We talk about this on this show, what else is true? And so as you're looking at your life right now and thinking, gosh, I might be feeling pretty low or I'm pretty feeling pretty low because of, you know, all the kids I'm seeing that are suffering. I just, we, I think we just heard what else is true. Why don't you contact Jordan and find out how you might be able to uh, implement bridges to therapy in your community. So until next week, this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off. Thank you again, Jordan. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within.
with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.